Okay, here we go. December 23, 2012. I don't have a dry erase board, so I'll hold on to the candle so my hands are, are not bothering me. December 23, 2012, Christmas Eve Eve. That is what we're doing tonight, as you know, Christmas Eve Eve. And I've uh, provided the title for the benefit of our vast Internet listening audience who have contacted me and told me they want more titles for these special events. And so uh, I'm uh, accommodating them. Uh, obviously, a vast probably is too strong an adjective. Uh, I should uh, substitute several so that we know that we actually have several Internet listening audience uh, instead of vast. Anyway, they that are them... Uh, will want to know that this is our Christmas Eve Eve service. And I know that they want to know because they make known that they want to know if that makes any sense. So all of that was for their benefit, and you'll understand why if you ever go and look us up on the Internet. You'll see uh, that they are uh, very assertive if you w wish to describe them that way with regard to uh, these kinds of things. And I feel, like I said, uh, uh, a need to make sure they're included. Anyway. This kind of day, these days, I am, these special event days, whether it be Mother's Day or, or Ishtar, Passover, whatever the, the topic happens to be, I feel like I have certain topics that I have to do. And every time that this day has come, um, I always want to uh, talk about the Shekinah glory, or I feel I need to. And that is what the candlelight surface ultimately is, is a representation of the Shekinah glory. It is very, very similar, for those of you who have not been here, to the communion service. The candlelight service and the communion service share the same uh, theological or doctrinal position uh, in the sense that they are asking you to believe something and to act on that belief. And this is done um, every... Uh, time at this, uh, or every year at this time, and you've heard me uh, discuss whether or not this is really the month or the day or any, of any time that Christ was born, and you know that I don't think it is, and um, it just is not one of the feast days of the Lord. There is no evidence that he could have been born here, but you can make the very strong case that this is the miraculous um, uh, incarnation or the uh, hovering of the Holy Spirit, the conception this is where the, the conception or the month that the conception may have occurred. That, I think, uh, is possible, but certainly not uh, a feast day. Remember, it was a pilgrimage festival when uh, Joseph and Mary uh, were uh, in, in motion there. They were also, um, you could make the case of a census as well, some have. But nonetheless, it was a, most likely a pilgrimage festival, which meant that it was one of the seven feast days. This isn't it. But what we do have is light coming to the darkest time of the year. Pretty obvious it's the darkest time of the year for us. And, and by the way, when light comes to, the, to darkness, the Bible is letting you know something. Whenever you see light coming to darkness, that is exactly the same. And I have to emphasize the same. Light coming to darkness is sameness as life coming to death. So what we're doing here is talking about life coming to death. We have no life. Life has to come to us. There's none of us that have it. We have death. So we are celebrating the fact that life did come to us and extend life to us. Jesus Christ, as you know, is the God of creation. He is the Lord God Almighty of creation. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made, John 1, 3. 
He is the one that made it, and it was, it is established that of the triune godhood, he is the maker of that triune godhood in the sense that all things are made by him. The physical manifestation of God, the invisible made visible, is Jesus Christ. In him was life, and the life was light, John 1, 4. So whenever you say light is coming to darkness, you are saying Christ is coming to darkness. And in him is life. He is the light. So you're also saying life is coming to death. And the light shines in the darkness. So God himself, creator God, adds humanity and comes to the darkness to give life to the dead. That's what we're doing. That's why we're here. That's why we're celebrating. We who have death are being given life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? John 11, 25, 26. That's a great question. I've ruined you. At your trial, it's going to be brought up that you were asked that question on this day. And you answered it. All of you did, I know. You've all thought about it and you have an answer. And that answer will be put in front of you on the day of your trial. I'll be there too. I will not be your attorney. What will I be? I will be the co-defendant. You will not be able to blame me. But this great question will be placed in front of everyone, and, and, and it must be and it will be answered by everyone. There is no other life, no other means of resurrection. That's what he's saying. Do you understand that? I am the only one, he says, that can resurrect you from the dead. I am the only one that brings you life. Do you believe me? Do you even know what I'm saying is true? Do you think it's true? So that's one of the subjects that I always feel compelled to address here, is that one. The Shekinah glory coming into darkness. Next on the list of mandatory Christmas Eve Eve subjects is the seed of the woman or the virgin birth. Or in this case, the, again, the, the miraculous conception. The seed of the woman, the virgin birth, the conception or the incarnation, that's the same thing. That's equivalence. All of those are the same. As you know, what was the purpose of the miraculous conception? We've been covering this a little bit, so those of you who have been coming would should be able to tell everybody how smart you are now. What's the purpose of the conception? Why did it have to be a virgin conception? Why did it have to be miraculous? Why didn't he just come fully formed? Hi, it's me. But he didn't. He decided to hide himself in humanity. Literally hid himself as an infant child. And who discovered him, by the way? That is, yes, that's right. By the way, she's absolutely right. Yes, those of you on the internet, I have a what? What is she, two? Two. The two-year-old wisely shouted out that she discovered him. And she's right about that, by the way. Profoundly right. Children do not reject him. They do not have the capacity to reject him. If he was here, every single child would get up out of their seat and walk to him. Everyone. They are his. You never have to worry about the children. Who do we have to worry about? That's right, the teenagers. Exactly. 
The purpose of the miraculous conception or the virgin birth or the seed of the woman was to prevent the contaminated poisoned blood of the first man. As you know, the blood of the child comes from the father, not the mother. The mother does not provide any blood. The father determines the blood. Adam's blood was contaminated and poisoned, and therefore he had death blood. And so the miraculous conception or the virgin birth, the number or the singular purpose, not the singular purpose, the foremost purpose was to uh, not contaminate that, that the child that Christ would become, that Christ utilized uh, with the poison blood of anything that came out of Adam. From, so in other words, the blood of the first Adam was not present in the last Adam, or Jesus Christ, or the second Adam, the God-man. So Christ's blood is sinless. And by the way, here God puts this in his Bible in Genesis, and no one even understood that the seed of the woman, when they read it, the first five books of, of Moses, the, the Pentateuch, when they read any of Moses, they never occurred to them that we would have to have a virgin birth because Adam's blood was contaminated, poisoned. And couldn't be utilized. But yet we had to have a human being. Why did we have to have a human being? Because I have to have a substitute, a sacrifice. I have to have a blood sacrifice. A one-for-one sacrifice. Moses had that worked out before anyone even understood the biology of how blood, the origin of blood, or the chemistry of the blood. What are the chances of that? Moses understood blood comes from the father, that the placenta of the woman provides nutrients and takes away waste, but not one single drop of blood comes from the father. That is exactly what the book of Genesis is saying. Who knew that? How many of you know that? Moses knew it. Where did he learn it? Who else knew it at the time he was saying it? No one. No one but the Bible says that, or said that at the time. That alone, the chemistry of blood alone, is enough to make you just, it should stun everybody who has ever lived. But anyway, Christ's blood is sinless because there is no father contaminant. Who is the father of Christ? Yes, that's like saying, who is the father of God? God is the father of God, right? The Godhead is the father of, of, of God. That's why he did it. Now, we, we confront on this day, uh, Christmas Eve, Eve, you can say it with me. This, I think I might be the last time I'll say it, just to get the point across. Um, we confront the beginning. Whenever we start look, talking about the, the lifeblood of Christ, we uh, are now beginning the revelation or the revealing or the beginning of the solution to sin and death. Sin and death would be ended. The seed of the woman has come. The miraculous conception has occurred at the peak of the darkness of the city of Jerusalem based upon the hemisphere that Jerusalem is in. Or the solstice, if you will. The darkness solstice is uh, in Alaska. We really get it. By the way, tomorrow we'll have, what, three more seconds of light. That's all. Yeah. There's nothing like going to work in the dark and coming home in the dark and sitting around in the dark where we're all dark. Nothing like that. You know, you have to live here to get that. 
No one else can have that. But here we have the peak of the darkness cycle, and it is apparent to me that this is when life comes. But we have to deal into the complexity that is the death of Christ. Into that we go. And normally we'd expect the death of the life. See, that's what I'm saying. Uh, not very well. The death of the life. How is that possible? How can we have the death of the life? We'd expect that to be a Passover lecture, right? But it's really not. Whenever you talk about the, the light coming to darkness, you have to talk about how, what happens to the life. The life goes on to die. How is it possible for God, who is life itself, He is life, He gives life, He is only life, there is no life but Him that is life, how is it possible for the life to die? And the instant the conception occurs, don't you realize, and the blood is not of Adam, I have perfect blood. How can I have death? See, the, the very question appears to be a contradiction. How, how can God die? Those of you who are my age remember the God is dead bumper stickers. How is it possible for God to die? How can one who has life blood, sinless blood, be subject to death? What, what makes you subject to death? What causes you to be subject to death? Sin. He has none. How is it that he can die? Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has no sin. And therefore, it is impossible, or so it seems, for him to die. How do I have the death of one who is life? And so to resolve this, uh, obviously the way you resolve it is to compare the two deaths of the two Adams. Uh, I have two federal heads of humanity. The first federal head uh, was Adam. Um, the second federal head calls himself the second Adam or the last Adam. And that is Jesus Christ. That's one of his names. So we have to compare their two deaths because their deaths were absolutely different. And see what is different about them. And that helps you solve the, the, this, this amazing Death of life. And immediately we're going to have to recognize and see the power that Christ has in contrast to us, but in specifically in contrast to the first Adam. Christ says things about his death that are extraordinary. That when, it, when he said it, and then he did it. And the people who witnessed both him saying it and the people who witnessed it happening were absolutely stunned. I can't even explain how stunned they are. I'll do my best. Jesus Christ specifically says to us, to his disciples, he says, I have the power to lay down my own life. What's, that, what's implied in that? You don't. I don't. Now you will argue with me, well, I can take my life. Sort of. He has the power to lay it down. There is a difference. I lay it down myself, he says. No man can take Christ's life. He alone has the power to lay it down by himself. John 10, 15 through 18. By the way, what am I doing right before your eyes? I'm dying. Right before your eyes. The very first thing I did when I came out of the womb was start the dying process. Jesus Christ never had a dying process. All we have is a dying process. It's hard for the young to recognize that. It's really easy for me. But Christ said, I, 
alone have the power to lay my life down. He had no dying process at all. Why not? No sin blood. He made certain that we understood that not only did he have the power to lay his life down by himself, what else did he have? He had the power to take it up again. So he could lay it down and take it up. How many times could he do it? As many times as he wanted. He could lay it down, take it up. I'll lay it down again, I'll take it up again. Didn't believe me? I'll do it some more. He could do it to us. He could and did lay it down. He could and did resurrect himself. The Godhead was involved, the triune Godhead, involved in the death and in the life, the resurrection. In the simplest possible terms, his act of dying was his choice. Now, it's obvious that any man may shorten his life. I may shorten my life, you may shorten yours, but you have not affected the, the, the death process other than affect the time of it. He had no death process. Christ has no death process. Our life eventually succumbs to death. And it is equally obvious that our, we have no power, none of us have any power to raise ourselves up again. We cannot lay our life down because it is succumbing to death. We can only shorten that, facilitate it, if you will, but we certainly cannot raise ourselves up again. Only Jesus Christ, who is God himself, he is the resurrection and the life. None but him have this title. And okay, it's critical to comprehend the absolute authority that Jesus Christ exercised at his death. The, the Greek word is not give up his life. The Greek word is, and the only time it is ever used is of Christ in all of the Bible. The only time this particular word is used is when he did it. It is news of no other man. It says that he dismissed his life in an act of will. I want you to consider what that means for a second. The word used in John's gospel is dismissed. Exactly that. Never used for the death of any other man. John 19.30, Galatians 2.20, Ephesians 4.19.5.2. Only used of Christ. Christ is the only person of whom it is said he dismissed his life. What does that mean? If I said that I dismissed the class, what would you do? You would ignore me. You would run for the buffet. All of you would stay. You would not go. Jesus Christ did it all the time. He did it to Satan. He said, go. What was that? That was a direct order by who? Someone who had commanding authority over who? Satan. How fast did Satan go? Instantly. Imagine the shock. He said it to Judas, go. When he says go, you go. When he dismissed his life, he ordered his life to leave. That's what that meant. Just as a commanding officer would dismiss his subordinates. You are dismissed. Boom, go. Immediately when he dismissed his life, it's like he blew out the candle, if you want to think of it that way. Instantly his life went. Who witnessed it? 
Somebody was watching it. Who was it? The Romans. Professional executioners watching. Somebody heretofore who was yelling in a loud voice in complete control. Had no issues at all with the crucifixion. Everything is fine. Carrying on conversation. We have earthquakes. We have darkness. When he's ready, he says to them, I have paid this debt in full. That is what it is finished means. I have paid it in full. And then he dismisses his life. I suspect he actually said, go. And he is instantly dead. His head is up. He bows his head, if you read the text. He has the ability to bow his head after he has been on the cross for hours. After he has been supposedly beaten by them. They have done everything. They couldn't get him to do anything. He told them where to go. He made them go where he wanted them to go. He didn't have any impact of the scourging on him. He is having no impact uh, as he's on the cross. And then he dismisses his life. Bang. Go. Boom. Dead. How many crucifixions have ever been like this? None. None. And those Romans who saw it were stunned. Absolutely astonished. And they knew immediately, didn't they? They knew that this man has authority. He has control over his own life. He can do whatever he wants in an instant over it. The act of will to dismiss his life impacted those Romans to the, to the place where they verbally committed the absolute honest belief truth, if you will. This is God. It's what the centurion said. Act of will to dismiss his life and an act of will to re-engage it. It is his own act. His death is a solitary phenomenon. His resurrection is a solitary phenomenon. And though it is impossible for him to die in eternity, it was possible for him to die inside of time. Good luck with figuring that out. Now, another point of comparison really quickly. Then we'll get to the, the aspect that is so important for all of us. Had Adam remained sinless, he could have substituted for how many people? One. Had he remained sinless, he had sinless blood. It's the principle of one for one. He could have substituted for one other person. That, by the way, is something that we're studying, isn't it? Why didn't he do that for Eve? He could have. He chose not to. Why? She asked him not to. If you were here for that, she had two requests of him. Save me. Something that he could not do. By the way, we'll discuss that further in the weeks to come. But also, don't forsake me. You see that, by the way, in typology all through the Old Testament. It is uttered by the nation of Israel. Save me, don't forsake me. Psalm 22, right? He could have substituted for one other person, that person Eve. That's all he could have done. But Christ is able to sacrifice for any and all who will believe and avail themselves to the lifeblood. He can save all who come and does. So the one-for-one principle still applies. How is it that he is able to save all of these people? 
There's only one solution. What is it? The fact that he is able to save for other than one other person is proof of what? He's God. It is another God proof in the Bible. And therefore, man is declared distinct from the animals. Both man and animal cannot escape physical death. Usually, forces come and wrest life from man and animals. But man can choose, he cannot choose to exempt himself from physical death. But he can choose to exempt himself from what? Spiritual death. In other words, physically man is going to be executed and there's nothing he can do to stop it. Spiritually, man can execute himself. See the difference? Animals merely are subject to physical death. Same children, if you will. Guiltless. No capacity an animal has to reject Christ. Children, no capacity to reject Christ. Animals subject to physical death only. How and why they are, as I said, I'll continue that series on January 13th. Why do I keep repeating that? Because I have enough of you here, you might spread it to the others who won't come at 2.30 now. Or if they do, they can help set up the buffet. It'll work out. Mankind can sin and die because he wants to. Because we will do so. We will to do so. We are invited to choose life, but overwhelmingly what decision is made by mankind? To choose death. Spiritual death. It's odd, isn't it? I, I, I find it odd. While our spiritual life is willingly surrendered, it happens, I rarely find a time when it is not, sadly. I run into countless people, so do you, they're all around you, they willfully surrender their spiritual life, their eternity. But they fight to their last breath for their physical life. Something that they have no choice in at all. That which they can choose to do, live forever through Christ, they reject. That which they have no control over at all, they fight tooth and nail to keep their sinfulness and die physically. They fight the physical death. Physical death overtakes us. So here and now is the time to do otherwise. I should read again John 11, 23, 27, so it's not my... uh, Words which are valueless to you. It is his words. This is what Christ says to you. He says, every winter solstice, I want you to think about this. Okay, that part's not in there. Jesus said to her, I'll start at 24. No, I'll start here, 25. Jesus said to her, I am. Whenever Christ says, I am, what is he referring to? He's referring to the burning bush where his name is declared. I am, he says. 
I am the resurrection and the light. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. There is physical, spiritual, a resurrection, all there, right? And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. The Christ is God himself in the flesh. He says, do you believe this? Here comes the candle. Now, I've never had people refuse to light the candle. You know why? It's kind of a defense system, I think. They know that there's a small child next to them with a candle. And they have all kinds of things that they can be lit up with. Have we ever had anyone set a flame in this church? As of yet, no. There is no sprinkler system here. So if something like that happens, we did have somebody, because we sang eight or nine songs, we have had people holding the candles and the paper caught on fire. Who did that happen to? Does that happen to you, Marie? No. But it has happened. It'll probably happen again. What do you do when that happens? You shriek and throw it up in the air and run. That's what we did last time. That seemed to work fine. We did have somebody come forward with three cups of water and, and throw it all over them. But what are we signifying? See, there's going to be, oh, holy night. How long is that? That's long. And then we have joy to the world. Actually, I think what I'll do is I'll stop after Old Holy Night. How long is Old Holy Night? Twenty minutes, yes. Okay, so we should be fine. But what are you signifying, to be serious again for a second, what are you signifying? You are answering the question that life has come to darkness. You are saying, he is saying to you, I am the resurrection and the life and the light that came to darkness. That's what that passage is saying. You are the Christ who has come to darkness. And you are saying, I believe you. And when you believe him, what do you get? Spiritual life, eternal life. You are choosing to do what you can do, which is choosing life eternal. You cannot affect your physical death. Nothing you can do about that. Make the one decision you can do. Make this one. So if the ushers would come forward and... uh, We like to turn the lights off completely. That makes it more dangerous. And so, um, as the uh, musicians come forward, and the musicians ask me, am I going to have to uh, hold a candle while I play the guitar? And the answer is yes. If I can get this to light. Okay, try something new. Yeah. I should say what you just said, but I won't. (laughs) Ask Nick what he said. Very blasphemous. Actually, quite funny. Okay, if everyone would stand with me, please. Do you believe this? He is the resurrection and the life. He is the light coming to darkness. He is your eternal choice. You believe him. 
Pretty simple, but extraordinarily profound. The significance to you, I can't even begin to explain it. Head and blow your candle out. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth that though we may die, we shall live because we believe that Jesus Christ is God, the resurrection and the life. Thank you for each one of these that will live, that choose to live. We will all find each other someday. Probably soon. And we'll we'll be glorified. And we will be glorifying you. And we'll be thankful. And the joy that we live. Because of the person that you are. Thank you for your goodness, your love, your mercy. Your salvation. Your justice. Your holiness. Please bless this congregation. Please bless those who you will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, one final song, and then I will dismiss you. Okay, I have no power to dismiss you. You will go on your own. But I will say to you, at the end of the song, you can just kind of wonder to the buffet there, which is really just candy. Uh, tell your friends, Tell your family, we're running out of time here. We really are. It should be obvious. I've never thought that I would see the end of the age of the Gentiles until I was probably about 25. Then I thought, no, I'm going to see that. That's probably 2050, I won't make it. Think it soon. It's time to tell your family. Go ask them the question. Because if you don't, they're going to say, why didn't you ask, them the, ask me the question? It's a pretty straightforward question. Do you believe this? Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Then walk away. They'll answer it. You don't have to hear it. At least ask the question. Okay. The next service, 3.30, January 13th. One more song. And then I'm not dismissing you.